WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. When Melody Homer settled on Wilmington as her family's new home, she was looking for a pace a bit slower than New Jersey. Being close to the beach was a definite boon. In Wilmington, she and her children would start a new chapter. Her foundation, the Leroy W. Homer Jr. Foundation, is named after her late husband, who died a hero on September 11, 2001. He was first officer on United Airlines Flight 93. He fought terrorists after they stormed the cockpit. While the terrorists attempted to direct the plane towards Washington, D.C., they ultimately crashed it into a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Everyone on board was killed. We'll learn today about the lessons that have emerged for Melody Homer from what is, for most of us, an unimaginable tragedy. We'll hear what she's learned about the effects on her children, the mission of her foundation, and now the multi-generational legacy of Leroy and Melody Homer. And we'll find out why she's so passionate about helping underrepresented young people with a dream to fly. She joins me now. Melody Homer, welcome to Coastline. Thank you very much for having me. It's good to have you with us. Now, on the phone, before this on-air conversation, you and I talked about how difficult it is for you to relive 9-11 and its aftermath. What have you learned over the years about how you talk about this part of your life? What I've learned is that if I talk about that day in painstaking detail, it will bring me back into that day. And I found out that that's not very helpful for um, mental health in general. I've learned over the years that initially the anniversaries were difficult because it felt like I was living that every day, and then once a year, everybody would stop. My phone would be ringing. I would be getting messages. I would just have all of this attention, and I often wished I could have, like my dream would have been if I could have gotten one of those phone calls every day or every week for the year and not just be overwhelmed with it on that one particular day. But I mean, I've definitely made my peace with it. And I do understand um, that that is how most people understand that day, um, is just in the events leading up to that day. And, um, you know, my reality definitely is a little bit different than that. So. Yeah, and you've said that you've learned some some more information than the narrative that initially came out after that happened, and we'll talk about that later in the program. But first, let's let's talk about Leroy Homer and who he was. When did he know that he wanted to be a pilot? Leroy told me that he grew up as far back as he can remember. He knew that that was what he wanted to do, and. There was a, a tradition with him and his dad where when there was family baby showers, 
they would go to the airport and they would watch planes take off and land. And that's one of his you know, favorite childhood memories. Um, he lost his, his dad when he was um, 12 years old. So um, having these memory, memories with his dad was always important. But he just, he, his childhood um, bedroom had airplane models hanging from it, scrapbooks all about planes. It, there was never a time where he ever considered doing anything else. How did the two of you meet? We were a blind date. <laughs> we were, um, we had mutual friends. I met them in California. I was in California at the time, um, working as a nurse and going to graduate school. And this couple, um, military, moved to New Jersey and were um, on the base where Leroy was and made Leroy's acquaintance. And a couple of years in, they just had this idea like, well, we know somebody in California that we think would be perfect for you. So we talked on the phone for about uh, a month, uh, five weeks. And this was before computers. And so he was supposed to send me a photo of himself and he never did. <laughs> he knew send what a, I looked send like. a photograph in the mail. Yes, yes, <laughs> physically, which he never did. Um, he knew what I looked like because I had been in their wedding photos. So I went to meet him. He flew out to LAX, and I went to pick him up sight unseen, which was um, I, I think I was a much braver person back then. Um, but we had spent so much time talking on the phone that as soon as we met, it felt like we already knew each other. And uh, later, he told me that he told his best friend after that weekend that he was going to marry me. Wow. And yes. so how much longer did that take? How, how much later did you get married? Uh, so uh, we met in person November of 95. I relocated to New Jersey in July of 1996, and we were married in May of 1998. And you had a daughter. Yes, we did. We had uh, my daughter, Laurel, in October of 2000. And you, in a, in a BBC documentary called Surviving 9-11, you talked about how Leroy used to send you postcards from his trips. Yes. Was this... Before you were married or during your marriage or both? And both. Wh what do you remember? <laughs> what are some of the postcards that you remember that were special? Um, they, were, they were funny because they transitioned from just being postcards to me about just a sentence or two of what he might have done during the day. And, of course, these postcards, he would be on a three-day trip. So I would get these postcards like two weeks. He'd already been home and <laughs> left on another trip, but I'd get these postcards about, you know, what he had done and how much he missed me. And then the postcards became to the Homer girls. Um, so he was still writing them to uh, Laurel and, and myself, um, even after she was born. Um, that's something that he would do that was really sweet. And another thing that he would often do is because he woke up so early, um, to drive from New Jersey to New York, he would often just leave little notes about like how great dinner had been the night before or 
you know, how much he missed me already. Um, yeah. He, so, was a, he was a romantic, for sure. Yeah, sounds <laughs> like it. Do you remember the moment that, I mean, did he propose in a traditional way or did the two of you just decide you were getting married? How did that unfold? Well, we, so he told me a month, he didn't tell me that first weekend, a month later he said, oh, I'm going to marry you. And uh, <laughs> and so I relocated to New Jersey, and um, we had started to talk about, like, we thought we were going to have a future together. But, no, he, um, he took me away for Valentine's Day in 97, and um, uh, in the restaurant, it's unfortunately no longer there, but Chef Tell's restaurant... Um, in uh, Pennsylvania, um, he got down on one knee. Uh, th- there was a, a box of chocolates, and he presented it, and he said, I think you should have that one. And my <laughs> ring was was on the bottom of that uh, chocolate. So, for, uh, again, another <laughs> very romantic uh, uh, moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then... On September 11th, mm-hmm. you said in this BBC documentary, you remember starting to get a lot of phone calls asking about yes. Leroy's welfare that yes. day. Mm-hmm. So I had um, I had gotten up and taken my daughter. Her child care was across the street. And so just pajamas, dropped her off, came back, and I was trying to decide, should I go to the gym? Should I have breakfast, what should I do? And I turned on the TV. And when I turned on the TV, I happened to see um, the first plane hit. And I'm sorry, excuse me, the second plane hit. I saw the second plane hit. And I was trying to understand what was going on. And one of the first things, I believe it was Katie Couric said, is it's a Cessna. So initially, I don't worry I don't think about anything and then when they start to understand that it is not a Cessna and that planes are you know this there's a second plane there's a uh, um, there's a plane in DC now I'm getting phone calls um, Leroy had a group of friends that he they were all in the Air Force at the same time. And then they all started to get out at the same time. And then they all went to United kind of as a group. So um, now I'm getting phone calls from this group of our friends, from the guys wanting to know where he is. And that's when I start to get a little nervous. I call the um, flight desk operations in New York and um, they assure me everything is fine because at that time everything was fine. Um, it wasn't until later that I started to find out that something was wrong. You're listening to Coastline. Melody Homer, president and founder of the Leroy W. Homer Jr. Foundation, is my guest today. When we come back, what Melody has learned about what actually happened on that flight and why she felt, initially, her husband's legacy got hijacked. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.
are listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Melody Homer is the president and founder of the Leroy W. Homer Jr. Foundation, a nonprofit whose mission it is to help young people who would like to work in the aviation industry to get their private pilot's license. The foundation is named after her late husband, who was the first officer on United Airlines Flight 93, which crashed on September 11, 2001, in a field in Pennsylvania after terrorists stormed the cockpit. When you first started seeing what was happening in New York City, you called the United Airlines Operations Office, the flight office, Correct, you said, yes. Melody? Mm-hmm. Yes. And they, they offered to send him a message in the cockpit. They did. And the message that I sent was, well, first of all, I had always had the information for flight operations to be able to reach him in flight because I had gone through a pregnancy. So if I had needed to, I would have done it in the past, but there had never been an emergency. So for Leroy receiving this message, um, he would have known something was very wrong. But the message that I sent him was, I just want to make sure that you're okay. And then I'm not sure... I can't remember specifically from the transcripts, but shortly thereafter, the cockpit received the message about two aircraft have hit the World Trade Center. Um, Please beware of cockpit intrusions. And shortly thereafter was when uh, the door to the cockpit was breached. Um, after the door was breached, it's Leroy's voice that is keying his mic and saying, Mayday, Mayday. Um, after that, his voice is no longer heard. Sandy Dahl and I listened to the cockpit voice recorder together. She identified uh, Jason's voice and um he sound. was the captain captain yes. on that flight. Yes, yeah. he was the mm-hmm. captain. Um, and for some reason, Leroy was removed from the cockpit, but based on the transcripts, not killed. Because at a certain point, it appeared that the airplane had been put in automatic pilot and the hijackers were not able to get it out. And um, which would have been something that uh, Captain Dahl would have been able to know how to do. He was a, a training pilot at the training center in the simulation. So the simulations basically simulate all types of emergencies. So he would have had the expertise to be able to um, put the plane in autopilot and make it difficult for the hijackers to remove that. And... Um, Further in the transcript, uh, they are struggling. You hear the alarms going off, um, and they say, bring the pilot back. Because at this point, I think they're recognizing that they're not being successful in being able to um, fly the plane. And while this is all happening, there's also the passengers and the crew revolting in the back. And... All of those events, in my opinion, are the reason that that 
hijacking and attack on the Capitol was thwarted. And, I mean, you've had to endure, as I said earlier, just what for most of us is unimaginable pain. But but then the narrative itself was a source of pain for you because you felt that his heroic legacy got hijacked, your word. Yes, Um, it it, it definitely did. Um, The... I would say the pilots in general were overlooked, but specifically on Flight 93 with a very different outcome. I think um, Captain Jason Dahl, Leroy, um, the crew, um, they were just glossed over in all of the coverage. And it came down to, you know, there were four strong men on the flight. That was kind of the narrative that went on. And I'm sure for a lot of people continues because what I've learned through this experience is the first individuals to go to the media with their story is the story that it's, you can make correction after correction after correction. It's very difficult to change that narrative. Um, I... I do, when I have an opportunity, I do try to bring it to people's attention. I encourage them to to look at the 9-11 Commission report. Um, however, yeah, it's, it's um, you know, it's been frustrating at times, but um, all of those people that uh, are involved with our organization, specifically our scholarship recipients, our volunteers, our board, I mean, we're always just trying to um, keep set that record straight. And so, right, that initial narrative was, as you said, the the four strong men who were passengers who were yes. storming the cockpit to take back control of of the aircraft. Yes. Um, so you're saying Leroy Homer, he would have been fighting. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he was in the Air Force. He was a soldier. He did, he did exactly what you're supposed to do in a hijacking. He was able to key his mic. He would have fought back, absolutely. Um, and I think, I think Jason fought back. I think he, he manipulated that plane. And the 9-11 Commission report states that no one made it to the cockpit um, based on the directional microphones. So... For those individuals who have gone on television and said that they've heard their spouse's voice, I can understand that desire to want that to be the truth, but um, that's not factually correct. And you also have said that it's significant that he was a black pilot. And and people have come to you and said, I didn't know there was a black pilot on Flight 93. Explain to us what the significance of that is to you in commercial aviation. Well, so my husband um, was biracial, and he, it's just very difficult at times. And he also, his father had passed away, so he had a single mom. It was not something, um, flight lessons can be very cost prohibitive, so it tends to, if you look at the aviation industry, it's primarily Caucasian males is what you'll see. So for um, Leroy to have f- 
done what he needed to do, get his private pilot certification prior to going to the Air Force Academy. Getting um, a nomination, you have to get congressional nomination to be even considered for the Air Force Academy, be successful in the Air Force Academy, have a successful military career, and then make that transition to commercial aviation. That's, that's challenging. Um, but that's how badly he wanted it. And um, yeah, he, 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 I think he's a great inspiration for a lot of um, African-American, uh, other minorities who think that that's not achievable. I mean, even uh, women, I mean, I love when I get on a flight and I see a female captain and first officer, I just feel like, like my heart is gonna burst because I know how hard it's been for them as well. So, yeah, and and we're gonna talk more about how you're helping and the the legacy that you're creating through your foundation. You're listening to Coastline. It's a conversation with Melody Homer, who is the founder and president of the Leroy W. Homer Jr. Foundation, launched a year after terrorists crashed First Officer Homer's Flight 93 into a Pennsylvania field on September 11th, 2001. For the 20th anniversary of 9-11, your daughter spoke with NPR's Melissa Block, and you found out that she actually had earlier memories than you realized. What, what did she tell Melissa Block that she remembered? She told her that she remembered being in a room. She wasn't sure where the room was, and that she had seen a picture of her dad and she had pointed to it and everyone in the room had made a noise. And her impression was that she had done something wrong. She told me later. But um, at the time, we were at the first anniversary of September 11th. This was September 11th. 2002, we were in um, Shanksville. We were at a dinner, and there was a slideshow of all of the uh, crew and passengers uh, as a uh, tribute. And she had been standing on my legs. She was not quite two. And out of the corner of her eye, she saw her dad's face. And so she pointed to it and she said, Dada. And I did not know until I heard that interview last year that she had this memory, not, not yet two years old, she has this memory. And I was always convinced that she knew something was wrong because she was, she would talk to Leroy when he called, she knew his voice, she would get a big smile on her face, she would, when she started walking, or even before she, when she was still just going, walking herself around our family room, she would get to his picture, she would kiss her, her hand, and she would kiss the picture and say, Dada. So she always knew. And then after September 11th, she had night terrors for a significant period of time. And at the time, did you know what was happening? I, I knew that um, 
Attachment, as a nurse, I know that attachment occurs around 10 months. That's when kids start to um, form attachments with their parents. So based on attachment theory, yes, I thought that she was missing her father. However, you know, people tell you that, oh, kids don't remember things when they're that young. And so I kind of didn't, I let myself um, listen to that and then, and not really recognize until Laurel had this interview and it just came out very organically that she had this memory. And I recognized that she had never forgotten him. What does that tell us about children, do you think? And, and has it changed the way you talk about things with your daughter? I think, I mean, for me, it was really difficult to hear because they don't have language. So they can't articulate. And if if she didn't, if she couldn't articulate how she felt about that moment, I didn't have the words necessarily to comfort her in that moment. Um, but I, but I think what I would tell people, and if I could do it again, is to we don't know when kids' memories start. It, it, obviously, it varies. It could be two. It could be three. It could be four. But we need to continuously treat them like they're in the room and not just because they're not speaking, pretend they're not in the room. Like, we have to explain things. Um, just keep that those lines of communication open so that when they're able to receive it and let us know we, we've provided them with the information that they need. So after this happened, you created your foundation. Yes. To honor your husband mm -hmm. and also help young people and underrepresented folks get their private pilot's license. You launched this foundation not very long after September 11th, 2001. When, when did you start the foundation? We incorporated in 2002, and I, a friend of mine was encouraging me to start something. Start. We didn't know what it was going to be initially. I honestly didn't think I could do anything. I was not doing well. And I thought, I don't know if I, you know, I was, I was struggling with even just raising my daughter by myself. I just, I was just so overcome with grief and depression. And it, I didn't know if I could take on anything else. But I had a lot of support. And um, specifically, his group of friends pilot friends that he had been in the Air Force with and then at United with were very encouraging and wanting to help me um, get this off the ground. So the, the thing that we decided is it needed to reflect Leroy's journey. So we wanted to give people help with their first step into aviation, which is the private pilot's license. And um, because Leroy was able to get his prior to going into the Air Force, um, 
it showed he had an aptitude for flight. So not everybody who goes to the Air Force Academy gets a pilot slot. I think it's about 10%. But if you come in showing that you have that aptitude, it can help you um, get, first of all, get into service academies, but then secondly, get into flight programs within the service academies. So we figured that that was a significant way that helping with that first step would be Leroy's legacy into helping um, young adults and we specifically 17 to 23 because we feel that that's usually around the time when people know what they want to do, right? Um, and based on Leroy and other pilots I've talked to, a lot of them know really early on that that's what they want to do. And so, um, yeah, we, we, we started out, we didn't know how to raise money. We didn't really have a good idea of, of how this was all going to unfold. But, you know, here we are um, almost 20 years later, and we have given out, I believe it's 29 scholarships, full scholarships. So that's anywhere from five to $15,000, depending on where um, the person is based. And it's all anonymous. Um, we we try to take out even gender, um, definitely uh, ethnicity, because we're looking for the best candidates. You mean when you're considering when who the recipients of the of the money will be? Correct. Yes. You, you're not looking at gender, ethnicity. No, we have a blind process. We have, um, and we look at academics. We look at. Uh, extracurricular activities, we look at leadership, we look at community service, and then we have an essay portion that um, we ask, when did you know you wanted to fly? Um, and more importantly, how do you see yourself getting from here to what your goal is? And that's a really important piece because not everybody's journey is going to be the same. So some individuals will go through a service academy, spend time in the military. They might do their whole career in the military, but some might retire and then move over to commercial aviation. Some might um, become certified flight instructors to build their hours and then get into onto an airline or a cargo um, company that way. So there's several ways that you can do it. And we just want to make sure that they have a solid plan. You're listening to Coastline. Leroy Homer always knew he wanted to be a pilot. We're talking with his wife, Melody Homer. She's my guest today, president and founder of the Leroy W. Homer Jr. Foundation, named after one of September 11th's heroes. More with Melody Homer. After this short break, stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.
listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Leroy Homer always knew he wanted to be a pilot. According to his eponymous foundation, as a child, he assembled model airplanes, read every book he could find on aviation, and began flying lessons at 15. He completed his first solo flight by 16, and by the time he entered the U.S. US Air Force Academy, he had a private pilot license. He achieved his dream, but on September 11, 2001, terrorists stormed the cockpit of United Airlines Flight 93 and crashed the plane into a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. First Officer Leroy Homer, along with every other person on board, died. His widow, Melody Homer, is the founder and president of the Leroy W. Homer Jr. Foundation. The mission to encourage and support young adults who wish to pursue careers as professional pilots and increase awareness of the field of aviation. You know, Melody Homer, you started this foundation just a year after this terrible day happened in American history. I mean, it's a personal tragedy. It's a national tragedy. You're a single mother now. You were a nurse. You are a nurse. Mm -hmm. This fundraising wasn't exactly your area of expertise. And when you started putting out feelers, you were also told it wasn't going to work. And yet you still did it. Why why did people think it wasn't going to work? They thought it wasn't going to work because they thought that people wouldn't want to support something that had a sadness to it. So in their opinion, the public relations um, individuals thought that his name attached, like perhaps if I called it something else, then it would be successful. But if I, but in my opinion, if I called it something else, then that would be harder to explain what we were trying to accomplish by, um, you know, I really wanted to make sure that Leroy's legacy stayed alive. And probably even more so because I felt like he was so overlooked in the telling of what happened on Flight 93. This was an opportunity for me to make sure that his name didn't just get lost. I mean, he was he was too great of a person, too great of a pilot, husband, father. I, I thought he deserved to ha- be remembered. And so... Despite not being able to understand how, what nonprofit was, I mean, we all kind of came into it and we learned along the way. And since his death, he's received awards posthumously, including honorary membership in the Tuskegee Airmen, the Congress of Racial Equalities, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Award, Southern Christian Leadership Conference Drum Major for Justice Award, mm-hmm. other awards. Uh, Honorary so, PhD. <laughs> okay. Yes, that's From it, which yeah. institution? Um, it's uh, it, there's an aviation college, I believe, in somewhere in New York. I I was there, I, um, but yeah, somewhere in New York, LaGuardia, I think, I believe. Now it wouldn't it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that, given what happened to him. And that even when he was alive, he was leaving you all the time, doing what he loved, Mm -hmm. but leaving you at home with your daughter because that's the nature of the job. It wouldn't be unreasonable to expect you to never want to have anything to do with aviation again. The, The thing is, he made me excited about aviation. So he would tell me, like, 
things that I wouldn't know like that were happening in the cockpit. I I went on trips with him. The last trip I went on, I was eight months pregnant with my daughter. I went to London and we actually took my parents. And um, my so my parents had the opportunity to have their son-in-law fly them. Um, so, no, I was really um, interested. I, he, he really uh, made me interested in aviation. And I also found that that aviation community, both on the military side and um, the United side, those are families. Like, they, they take you in. Um, and they make sure that they, especially in the beginning when we had uh, news trucks, media, like the chaos of everything, they came and they surrounded us um, and just anything we needed. And that went on for months. Um, so, no, I, I never wanted to get away from, from my aviation people, my families. And you explained that there are barriers for these underrepresented groups that we've identified mm-hmm. as um, minorities, women. Mm-hmm. Why do those barriers exist? Why is this white male dominated? Well, it's improving. So that part's good. I think, I think you just don't see yourself. If you don't see yourself, you know, if you if you get on a plane and you turn left and you never see yourself, especially as a young child, you don't think that this is something that you're going to ever be able to do. So one of the things that we do with our awareness piece is that we go into schools and we do um, we do little assemblies where we show the kids pictures of Orville Wright, but also. Bessie Coleman, who was an African-American pilot, like we want them to understand, you know, Amelia Earhart, like we want them to see somebody that looks like them. And we want to make sure we're doing it when they're starting to formulate, what am I going to be? And I do some of those presentations. And some of these kids quite frankly, haven't even been on an airplane. So the thought that they could one day fly that is something that, you know, it's really great if we can introduce it early. We do um, a lot of public engagement events. So that's another avenue that we have. Um, When I lived in New Jersey, that school system was great about allowing us to set up on open house nights. We sold wristbands. And we gave out information to kids that way. So we're always looking for opportunities to just introduce um, younger kids to the idea that this is possible for them. And you've also been passionate just about commercial aviation safety. There, there are still some issues that exist. And certainly, I mean, the way it looks to lay people, the United States just wasn't prepared for what happened right. on September 11th, 2001. In fact, there was an Air Force pilot in the BBC documentary Surviving 9-11 who talks about how this was a failure of American leadership, essentially, because the flight crew just should never have been in that position in the first place. There have been improvements since then, but are there still areas that we need to improve for flight crew security? There are. And um, unfortunately, I think a lot of 
the public believes that um, we have these uh, federal air marshals that are on every flight. And um, if you look over time, the that program has been reduced and shrunk. And I don't know what it is currently, but I know that that's one of the things that continuously gets cut. Um, there's the FFDO program, which is the um, pilots who have voluntarily chosen themselves to be armed. Um, and that is certainly a lot of my friends and the people, um, the pilots, families and friends and, and colleagues, those are the people that are probably most likely to want to arm their cockpits because they've seen what us firsthand what we've gone through and they want to be able to do whatever they can to protect their aircraft so that there's that program however the cockpit door still needs to be open when a pilot has to use the restroom or get his crew meal and there have been cockpit intrusions by at this point mentally ill people um, who've tried to get control of the aircraft. So the solution is something called a secondary barrier. And um, airplanes, Boeing, when they um, were developing the 787 Dreamliner, they actually delivered to United um, airplanes with secondary barriers. United paid to have them removed. Um, so the reason being airlines don't like to be mandated to, to make changes. So it's a slow process. Um, Ellen Saracini has been very involved. Her husband was Captain Victor Saracini on Flight 175. She works with the pilots' unions down on Capitol Hill um, on bipartisan legislation to try to get this vulnerability um, fixed because we don't want anyone ever to have to go through what we went through that day. And so if this is the thing we're doing till the very end of our lives, I hope that it gets resolved before something bad happens. I really do. But um, there is definitely still uh, safety issues on board that flight. And as an example of the fact that it is known there's a safety issue, pilots cannot leave the cockpit if they are one hour away from DC. So, Interesting. Well, that, yes. so what does that say to you? <laughs> that says to me, and so if a pilot is flying to DC and back, unless he's on the ground, he's not allowed to open his cockpit door. So we, everyone understands that there is a vulnerability and a drink cart with a flight attendant who, if she's a senior flight attendant, she could be 60 years old, but she, she can't fight off, you know, an attack of that nature. So and right now in some of these older aircrafts, you're <laughs> saying it's just that it's the flight attendant that's who is what the they barrier. Do. Yes. It's either the flight attendant or it's the drink cart. And, and both have been shown in um, mock simulations even though the flight attendant or the person playing the flight attendant knows the attack is going to happen, it's is still not able to prevent it. So that's concerning. 
And this secondary barrier that you're talking about, it is interesting to just looking at that and seeing that this is a bipartisan effort. Yes, it, it it's is. Not, it's unusually not political in that sense. Right. You've also said it's not expensive. It's not expensive at all. It's, it's um, we've heard different things. So it makes the aircraft heavier. Um, it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, the... It would it would require more training for the flight attendants when they go for their um, you know annual training. It's not that complicated. This it's and I've seen it in use um, on flights. It's just uh, uh, something that stays in the wall and then pulls out and clicks into place. I, I don't know how much training in essence of what they already have that would require. So all of these sort of um, reasons that we've been told in the past have kind of been debunked. So the FAA has agreed to put secondary barriers on newly delivered aircraft. That rollout's been kind of slow, but what's more concerning is we need legislation for the aircraft that are already um in circulation and being flown because the life of a airplane could be 35 years. So we have to retrofit all of the ones that are already in service as well. So that's the legislation that Ellen and um, the um, pilots unions and the flight attendants unions are fighting to try to get passed. And you also mentioned that pilots can get certified to carry weapons themselves but yes. this is something they would have to do on their own and they wouldn't be allowed to carry a weapon internationally? Correct. So we do have that protection when we're flying domestically, but you you will never know if your pilot has chosen to be part of that program or not. But, um, and I'm not quite sure how many, like what the percentage is, but that is a program that, um, that, has been approved, and actually Ellen Saracini was very instrumental in testifying to Congress um, to have that enacted. That was enacted in November of 2002, that um, pilots were able to be armed. And just going back to your foundation, we, we just have a couple of minutes left. You, you talked about awarding um, recipients' scholarships, funds for their private pilot's license mm-hmm. based on a blind process that did include an essay, among yes. other elements. When you think about the recipients that you've had now almost 20 years, you're mm-hmm. very close to your 20th anniversary, are, is there anyone who stands out that you just think that's a life that we've significantly changed that now is going to make a, an important contribution in the world? Well, the nice thing is that our recipients, we they're very close to each other and to us. We don't lose track of them. <laughs> um, it's very difficult to get away from, <laughs> from our, our little group, but um, they are making significant. Um, you know, we have, we have someone who worked for Boeing. We have test pilots. Um, we have um, Uh, somebody who just started working for United flying the 787. Um, One of our recipients was instrumental in helping with the um, evacuation of Afghanistan uh, last summer. I mean, they are an amazing group of um, 
individuals. And the things that I thought I knew about aviation when I started, are they're doing things that weren't even around 20 years ago. You know, um, they are wanting to uh, be in drone programs and um, cybersecurity. There's just so many things that they have done, and I'm really proud of my group of recipients. And that is this edition of Coastline. Melody Homer, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Fernell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook at WHQR Coastline or send us an email at coastline at whqr.org. And you can find the episode there, whqr.org, or your favorite podcast platform. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.